doesn't matter how right you are if you can't explain it. Um, you can be the most brilliant engineer with the best solution, but if you can't explain it to others or convince others, um, doesn't matter. Your impact is net zero. Welcome everyone to the Tech Guide Podcast, where we give actual advice to those wanting to break into tech or are looking for their next gig. We have Mike Bernico, a senior staff software engineer at Google on. Super excited to have you on, Mike. Thank you so, so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I want to talk a little bit about early Mike, um, how you got interested in computer science, falling in love with technology. Um, so take me back to like an early story of you, like first discovering technology and be like, hmm, like, I think I'm actually going to pursue this as a profession. Uh, okay. Well, uh, I'll take you way back. Um, my first experience with computers was, um, my grandpa had a Commodore 64, which is probably pretty, it probably predates most of your listeners by quite a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and back then um we didn't have the disk drive yet that was an optional component so um the only storage was cassette tapes um and we used to get these magazines in the mail right and you get this magazine and what it would be like is the magazine would be like oh go to page 20 for the new game right yeah and so you go to page 20 and you have this big list of code that you type in and um, that's how I started programming when I was about seven years old. If I pro if I typed everything in right, I could play the game. So um, that's um, it's it was a really weird way to learn to code. But sure enough, the, like I learned like, oh, if I make a mistake and put a semicolon here instead of a colon, then this happens. Or if I, um, you know, interesting. Yeah. So so you learn a lot that way um, by breaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to get a game onto a computer, a magazine would send it to you and say, like, code this to make it happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be like the actual code and then you would just type it in verbatim. Yeah. 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 Um, That's so that, cool. That wasn't the only way that it worked, right? You could also get um, cassette tapes with games on them or little ROMs, I think, um, or, you know, some people had disk drives, but. That was one of the ways you could do it. And it was, it was probably a very low cost way, but I don't really remember or know. That's super interesting. That was like, and you're seven years old. So that's like really building the foundation to like where you got today was these magazines that had code. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I think um, it's always just been a little bit of who I am. I drove my parents crazy taking things apart and, um, you know. I kind of feel like that's like the engineer and like everyone. Um the 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 engineer and every engineer um starting from a young age of like building stuff and like tearing it apart to see how it uh how it really goes <laughs> totally totally yeah we're you know i was definitely uh, some of it's probably uh nature but a lot of it's probably nurture and it just sort of like i was socialized that way and my dad was a blue collar guy always working on a car or something so yeah i really like that i really really like that and so then you go to the University of Illinois Springfield to uh, get your uh, bachelor's degree in computer science. Uh, you also got a master's degree in computer science as well. Um, and this kind of leads you into a few different roles, being an instructor, but also landing at State Farm. Um, 
being a data scientist in 2011. I don't even know if this was a term in 2011. Uh, so you're at the very early ages of data science. So take me to like landing that first data science role and how big question here, but like how has data science like really evolved since 2011? We can kind of chop that up as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, in 2011, there definitely wasn't, I mean, maybe, I don't remember when like the, the term was coined by those folks, but um I'm guessing that predates it. Uh, so at State Farm, I was working in uh, research and development. Uh, I was working on um, more like backend stuff, like data storage and things like that. Um, so as I was doing that, uh, this thing came out called Hadoop, which you may or may not know about. Um, and it was like a open source version of the MapReduce algorithm. And everyone was real excited about it at the time. I've always had a lot of um, success in my career by being a bit pessimistic about whatever I was working on. Interesting. And in this case, it was like, oh, Hadoop's going to be the new thing. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I'll set it up for you. And as I did, I, I was kind of like, yeah, all right, this is cool. It can store a lot of data, but like, who cares? Why does this matter? Yeah. At the time, um, my company, State Farm, was working with another company called Cloudera, which was, I think they're still around. They were a startup in the Hadoop space. And um, we were visiting Cloudera um, in Palo Alto, I think was their headquarters at the time. And... Um, and I met this guy out there named Josh Wills, who was the director of, I think, data science at the time. Yeah. So I'd never heard of the term. And Josh gave this really cool demo where he was like, okay, here's a whole bunch of credit card data that we've stored in Hadoop. And, and now if we run uh, K-means clustering on it, we can find anomalies and find credit card fraud. Wow. And that sort of like flipped a switch in my head because I was like, oh, I get it. This is, this is, this is why all this, you know, with the time we were saying big data, this is why big data matters. This is why we should care. This is the application of it. And that's important. So that's, I came back to state farm then. And I said, Hey, there's this data science thing. We need to have some of this. Let's do this. And, um, became begrudgingly to state farm, uh, the first, I would say data scientist before the title existed. Um, Hard to find your way in data science at State Farm or any insurance company because the thing about insurance companies are they have a lot of statisticians. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of like math experts. There's a lot of actuaries too, which are also math experts. So where does data science fit with respect to statistics and actuary? And and really where I found it fit in that organization was by going in the places where maybe the statisticians that were, you know, already doing work weren't ready to go. Right. So I, I focused specifically on text and images because those were places that, you know, at the time you couldn't load those into SAS and do your, you know, thing. So yeah, it, that's, that's how I got my start in data science. Um, one of my first big products at, at State Farm, one of my first big projects was um, using computer vision to estimate damages on vehicles. Wow. Um, that was, you know, back then it was like, we were lucky to have one GPU. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was one of the first applications of neural networks at, at, at the company. 
And it was actually um, the funniest part about it. I couldn't get access to actual pictures of real broken cars. So um, just because of you know, enter enterprise policies. So a friend of a friend of mine and I went out and went to Walmart and we bought like 10 matchbox cars and we took a bunch of pictures of them and we just started beating them with hammers and took more pictures of them until we had a, a data set where we were able to come up with a proof of concept. And um, that's so cool. It worked surprisingly well. And a couple weeks later, I found myself presenting to the CEO of State Farm about these matchbox cars and. Really, that was what solidified my place in, in data science there. That is such a cool story. I love, I, I was expecting you to say like you went to like a junkyard and like kind of like did it started from there, but I love the innovation with like the matchbox cars. That is awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the junkyard would have worked too, but you need unbroken cars to start. True. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is super interesting. And so then you present this to the CEO of State Farm, not sure who it was at the time, but this is like a big deal because like State Farm's like a obviously a humongous company. This is not like some small company. So obviously they saw the value of this project. Yeah, I believe it was Ed Rust and um it was yeah, they're the largest automotive insurance company in the US. So pretty pretty big. That is really interesting. And so was that because you, you were a principal data scientist for a few years, then you're the lead data scientist. How did that team grow? Um, because you're basically the first one, but how did how did State Farm start investing? and you to like start leading this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it was, there was a lot of uh, false starts. There was a lot of uh, iteration. Um, it grew slowly across a couple of different organizations and there was a lot of politics. Uh, um, I was very lucky in that um, I found a really, um, my, my best friend still, Jeff Myers, who was the director of uh, the, what would become a data science center of excellence. And um, he was very, uh, very good at building organizations and yeah. leading people. And so he was able to do some of that kind of stuff while I was able to work on more of the technical direction. Like actually. And, um, and, and together, I think we, we built something pretty cool there. Yeah, that is really, really cool. Um, and to see that like actually implemented at State Farm has to be a very re rewarding experience for you. Definitely. And I think that um, the thing that Jeff taught me that I'm most appreciative of is he, he really showed me how to run a data science practice or a machine learning practice, practice as, a, as a business. Yeah. Um, and when I say that, I mean, it, it's really easy to just fall in love with the technology and want to do the technology for technology's sake. But thinking about how do we use the technology and the tools that we have and the machine learning and all of this cool stuff, how do we use this to enable the objectives of the business is um, often overlooked. And, um, and it's a really powerful tool because if you think about it, when we map our AI goals back to your business goals, then we can prioritize those, right? I can say, this is more important than this because this has... This requires less effort and has more yeah. impact on the bottom line. Yeah. And I like that connection that you just made there is like connecting like the AI goals with also like the business goals. Um, because once you understand those business goals, it's applying AI to like reach those. Yeah, that's exactly it. 
Okay, that's really cool. Um, I feel like a lot of like AI tools um, or a lot of AI projects that go on maybe don't start like that, but I could definitely be wrong. But I think like anyone that's like being like, oh, I should start an AI project for my company. It's like, what is your actual business goal in mind and developing a project for that? That's exactly how I would think about it. And um, you, and it's how I think um, still today as I lead my team, I don't know any team that's like, that says, we're adequately staffed. We have all the people we could ever need, yeah. all the resources we ever need. Resources and people, especially in the AI space, it's sparse, right? We don't we don't have as much as we need. And um, so we have to prioritize. And one really good way to prioritize is mapping back to the business goals that we're trying to achieve. I really, really. Or just even, you know, the human goals, right? Um, uh, I currently work in... Um, the Fitbit area. And so we're thinking about how do we help people live healthier lives? And so it's easy to prioritize against that goal. That's really nicely said. Um, And let's talk about like what you're currently doing, because like I said, you're a senior staff uh, software engineer at Google. Um, Can you kind of take us like real quick, like what does this role like really entail? And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, so today I, I run a small team of machine learning engineers. Uh, there's, five of us, including myself. They're all very brilliant. Um, (laughs) especially if they're listening, they're especially brilliant. Um, and, uh, we work to solve ML problems at sort of an engineering scale, or I would say, you know, uh, ML engineering at like Google scale, right? How do we build it for everyone? Um, and, uh, yeah, we work with researchers, we work with uh, other software engineers to um, to make really robust products, but then also like platforms that those products can use. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, things like that. That's really cool. And I feel like you said it. Google scales bigger, uh, much bigger scale than a lot of other <laughs> a lot of other scales. Uh, so I always keep that in the back of your mind. But you said you leave a team of five or so. Um, we were talking before the podcast as well. Like right now, like you're balancing like leading people like these five people but you're also in the day-to-day like actual like coding of the technical um talk to us about that balance is that balance common how should people think about do i want to lead do i want to be technical yeah so in previous places i've worked um sometimes what can happen is leadership is treated almost interchangeably right even Mm -hmm. in technical spaces where you like this is a manager. What they do is manage. And yeah. they can be picked up from this team and put to any other team because all they really do is manage. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe there's like someone that sits parallel to them. It's like an architect that might have some sort of technical vision. Um, not doesn't work that way at Google. Um, my boss, their boss, their boss's boss, probably all the way up to Sundar, right? Everyone is very, very deeply technical. Yeah. And it's an expectation of our leadership that all of our leaders are technical. So to some extent, they're all sort of threading the same needle I am. Yeah. Um, What I love about my organization is, is that we have the opportunity to really let people um, fall into that continuum where they best fall. Um, Some people are, you know, more biased towards the leadership side of things and building organizations. Some people are more biased towards the technical, but we're all in that continuum. And, um, 
And yeah, it's a, it's a really great place to work because of that. Everyone, I think, um, you know, my director has programming experience in like five languages, right? So, wow. um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, everyone's very technical. Um, I am a career engineer, right? If, if you told me tomorrow, Mike, you have to pick, you can either lead people or, um, write some code, work on a project. I'd be like, Hmm. Okay. So which project am I working on? I mean, it wouldn't even be a, it wouldn't even be a consideration. Um, interesting. That's maybe not the best thing career wise, right? That's not how you climb the corporate ladder for sure. But who cares about that? That's how it, that's what sort of like makes my soul happy. That's, um, what sort of feeds me and kind of replenishes me. Um, like a lot of engineers, I'm definitely a little more introverted, a little bit more calculating, um, you know, as we talk, I can feel the, uh, my social energy pouring out of me right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I think, um, that's who I am and I recognize that. And that's awesome. I, I love, um, helping the engineers on my team develop and grow and giving them opportunities where they can exceed and putting them in the spotlight. These are all wonderful things. Um, but I'm also a very techie person. And so I, I try to do both. Um, it's not easy to do, yeah. uh, you know, there's it, and it's not easy for my team either. Right. Who wants to be, uh, sharing code or reviewing code from your boss? Like that's yeah. super awkward, but, um, we make it work. Uh, I, you know, I, my, my team is really good at giving me really honest feedback and, um, I greatly appreciate that. And, uh, I also am very careful to pick technical projects for myself where I don't block the team. Interesting. So, you know, at best I get to, I get to contribute technically maybe half the time if I'm really lucky. Okay. And so I try to find, um, I try to find projects that are a little bit less in sort of the critical path so that that way the folks that have full-time responsibilities coding can do what they can do and do it quickly. And then I can be off, like, you know, doing something that's maybe a little less, uh, critical, um, to the, to the execution of the team. I think that's like a really cool thread to be down. And I like uh, how you approach it. It's like, do I want a long-term, like what fills my soul? Is it doing these technical projects or is it like, like leading a bunch of people? And for you, like, it's like doing more of the technical stuff. Uh, but someone for like me, like I would definitely prefer to like be leading people, helping people, managing people. Um, so I feel like it's just coming down to like knowing like, what are your personal preferences? Like what does fill your soul? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think knowing yourself is, um, you know, it's a big part of this. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm curious. So like, how do you like, you said like, you don't want to like get in the way of like critical tasks. Like you don't want to be that roadblocker for them. Um, I'm curious from like a developmental perspective in like my head and like other people's head, like how do you approach that? Like how of knowing like, I'm not going to be someone's like, I'm not going to be a roadblocker if you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so um, there's a couple of things that I think are really important it's really important for my, for me to have my software craftsmanship be really next level. Yeah. And the reason why is because the folks that depend on me and look to me as a leader are 
you know, maybe, maybe incorrectly, but are seeing my code as example, which is scary. Yeah. So it has to be good. It has to be good. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that quality and documentation. Um, I also spend a lot of time prototyping. And when I say prototyping, I mean, you know, there are more machine learning papers that come out than, than I could read, you know, probably yeah. some LLM can read them all, but like not me. And so I really am filtering, scanning, trying to find out what's new, what, what smells like it could be useful for our use cases in our business. Yeah. Then reading, kicking the tires, playing around with stuff like that. Um, I spent a lot of time doing that. And that's really important to me because I think that one trap you can fall into as a leader is like, we would joke when I was back in cloud, we would joke, well, well, it worked in PowerPoint. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's the problem, right? It's like the documentation and the presentation that someone gives on the technology doesn't always match how it works. And so having that like hands-on experience with something is really the way to, to know it in a way where you can architect it or design it or lead with it. Right. Interesting. If I say I'm going to use technology a, if I've used technology I and mean, then I can say that with so much more confidence than if I've just read about it. Yeah. And I feel like you said, like, uh, you said like a really interesting point is like, you are like writing code as well. And everyone at tech at Google is very technical. And so you also are holding yourself to like a super high standard of having excellent code because at the end of the day, like those five team members are like looking up to you and like how you're doing your code. So I feel like that would not mentally taxing, but like it's kind of in the back of your mind. Like I need to deliver like every day. Yeah, it's definitely in, in the back of my mind um, and sometimes the front um, yeah. thinking about like I, a good a good story about this is uh, I was working on some code not too long ago and I saw this problem in my mind saw it and I was like, I know a recursive solution to this yeah. and I had to code it. But also, I I knew better. I was like, you know, yeah, this is cool, but I also shouldn't do it because, yeah. well, it's really cool and it's maybe slightly less uh, complex than just like using a loop. Uh, it's going to be less readable. And so um, it, I did end up writing it recursively and two of my teammates were like, yeah, but uh, I think it should be a loop. Make it, let's keep it simple. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. But um, that's a yeah. good example of, uh, you know, uh, you got to think about what's what um, what's best for the code base and not sort of like what's just best for your own ego or what's cool. You yeah, know? <laughs> I like that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have any like technical experience. Like I could I know uh, uh, like print hello world or whatnot, but uh, definitely not technical, but all the interviews that we do have with technical people, it's always interesting to hear like them say like, Oh, when I write code, like I need to make it. So like if I get replaced, someone in five years can like read and understand this code and making it super simple like that. Like we've heard that so many times in this podcast. It's so true that, um, you know, you should write code to read. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be read, to be read. And, um, yeah, I, I forget who said it, but um, it might be, uh, uh, I, I'll misquote it if I guess, but someone said, You're good. Um, the uh, premature optimization is the root of all evil. And I so like I think make your code readable and, you know, you can always optimize it later. I really like that. 
So we are kind of winding down here. Um, I do want to ask about standing out at Google and like some of the top things like you've noticed in your team members and like the highest performers at Google. Is there like a certain thing they do, a certain characteristic they do to like really stand out at Google that someone listening can be like, oh, well, if they're doing that at Google, like I should do the same thing. I guess there's a couple of like things I say, or I, I don't know. <laughs> they're probably Mike memes at this point, but like, uh, one of the things that I, I tell engineers is um, it doesn't matter how right you are if you can't explain it. Um, you can be the most brilliant engineer with the best solution, but if you can't explain it to others or convince others, um, doesn't matter. Your impact is net zero. Yeah. And so that's really important. As engineers, we kind of joke about like soft skills, right? But um, we all think we're we're a little bit Sheldon, and we probably all are. But um, yeah, that's important. Um, being able to convince others, bring others along. Interesting. Re really necessary. Yeah. Um, that, that's an important part of the job. Another important part of big companies, like really big companies, um, that in which are the companies I've worked in, is the ability to sort of like be resilient. Then, and it's something that I've personally had to really work on. When I, when I say resilient, I mean... Um, some big change happens, a reorg happens, uh, you know, I don't know. Some something, something someone happens. pulls the rug out from underneath the view. Yeah. Um, not being derailed by that, but being resilient to it is uh the mark of someone who's gonna go pretty far in an organization. I really like those two tips. And yeah, I feel like a lot, I mean, everyone can benefit from like persuasion skills of like convincing people, like, oh, like we should work on this project or like this is the correct way to code it. But also, I like the example you gave. You could be the most brilliant pe person in the world, but if you can't explain it like a, to like a fourth grader, uh, that's a saying that, I hear a lot. Uh, I think that's always uh, really good advice, especially uh, for someone in a role like this. Yeah, for sure. Um, Google likes to talk about um, the ability to thrive in ambiguity. And I think that's another nice way to say that, you know, sort of like resilience piece. Um, I think that it's surprisingly uncommon. Yeah, I really like that. Well, that'll wind us down today, Mike. Uh, really fun conversation. Really cool to hear about the the boxcars. That is uh, a great story to share. Um, and yeah, thank you for all your tips on like Google, how to stand out um, and just general advice. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Perfect. And then last question, where can people, uh, I should ask this earlier, where can people uh, connect with you to like learn more about you? Uh, yeah, please plug that. Um, LinkedIn, I guess, awesome. uh, is probably a good way to find me. Um, I have a I used to teach a course on data science and all of my videos are on YouTube. If you're interested, search my name, you'll find them. Uh, I've done a couple of talks, especially on responsible AI. That's all on YouTube as well. So yeah, check, awesome. check out what I got. Awesome. Well, thank you for pouring all your social energy into today and everyone, please uh, go check that out. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care guys.